Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host, Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or RO, is a community of wellbeing managers from organizations around the globe. At RO, we develop you as a wellbeing leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace wellbeing solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving wellbeing in your workplace, professional development is key. These discussions on workplace wellbeing are designed to inspire, share ideas, and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. The interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing Wednesday webinars. In this episode, we chat with Nick Jenkins. Nick is a health and safety professional who suffered a traumatic brain injury after a mountain biking accident in 2020. He shares the story of his injury and his rehab and recovery journey. We also talk about returning to work after a significant injury and adjusting to a new normal. Join us and be inspired by Nick's story and gain an insight into life with a traumatic injury and overcoming all the odds. I've been working in the health and safety sector for about 13 years now. Um, so I've worked in various industries uh, from government, corporate, organisations levels through the insurance industry, uh, construction. So I played a big part in the Christchurch um, earthquake rebuild with a couple of big insurance companies. Then moved into agriculture and retail. And now I'm in the, I guess you'd call it the service industry. So with um, fuels and technology. So current role is principal advisor, health, safety and wellbeing. Um, And I guess if I step back a little bit, how I got involved in health and safety, as we'll call it, I really enjoy helping coaching and facilitating people just to achieve um, really the aim is to keep themselves safe right it's pretty simple when I boil it down and I'm quite a people-centric person so I like that I like the interactions Um, and obviously there's a natural evolution just within the health and safety sector um, recognizing well-being and all the other psychosocial factors so really acknowledging it as a true risk so that's really how I've come to be in the well-being space. Fantastic and then Let's go to your accident in 2020. So tell us about what happened. Yeah, good question. Um, I don't actually know. And honestly, I don't. It sounds a little bit strange, but I can give a bit more context than that. So um, as you mentioned, I was up on the Port Hills here in Christchurch um, going mountain biking with a friend of mine. So both um, reasonable competent mountain bikers. Um, It was a nice sunny Sunday afternoon, the day before starting back at work for 2020. Um, and we just got up for a bit of a chat, a bit of a debrief about how Christmas was, um, how the families were, um, how work was the year ahead, that type of thing. Um, and obviously had a chat. And then I remember putting on my helmet, um, asking my friend Ryan um, which trail we were going to go down. I was pretty free and easy, carefree. Um, so I just said, look, I'll, I'll follow you. So off he turtled down the trail. Um, at some point, um, he obviously turned around to ask me a question, and he thought, Nick's, Nick's not really right behind me, and that's a little bit strange. So he pulled over and waited for a second and then thought, hmm, this is a bit strange, Nick hasn't caught up. So he came back up the trail, find me in a bit of a state, obviously. So my last memory is literally putting on my helmet, and then my first memory that I have after that is looking around the hospital ward um, so I could see the curtain around my bed. Um, I could see some doctors and nurses um, buzzing around as you do, there was a, a paper bag with my name and property on it next to my bed. And obviously I had uh, my arm in a splint, um, had a few um, wires and cables attached to me. But the result was I'd obviously crashed my 
crashed my bike and I had a traumatic brain injury and that resulted in some hemorrhaging and bleeding on the brain. Um, damaged my frontal lobe, which is the front part of um, your brain, and then obviously did some other injuries too. So fractured my arm, some fractured vertebrae, lots of cuts and lacerations. So that's that's really a summary of what happened. Um, I guess if we go down rabbit holes, like I said, we don't actually know what happened. It was a pretty tame track, uh, nothing out of the obvious that we could identify. So it's remarkable from, as you said, almost like such a benign incident, benign day, everyday activity, and yet suddenly you find yourself in the situation where your whole world has changed. Mm. What were some of the initial, from a well-being perspective, things that you noticed in those really early days of, I wouldn't even sure, would you call it recovery? I'm not even sure. At that stage, I imagine um, working out what's happening and what's wrong and yeah, yeah, good, good question. Um, I'm just, I'm just trying to think through. I was, I don't know. I suppose I was in a really funny place. Obviously, like I say, I knew that there was something, um, something wasn't right. Something had happened. I knew it involved me because obviously I was, I was at the centre of it all. I had family coming in, doctors and nurses coming and going. But I guess initially it was just acceptance, like you say, that that something had happened. Something wasn't right, and some things had to be done, whatever they were. At that stage, I didn't know where I, where I was really at because I, I couldn't comprehend a lot of things. My you know, memory was terrible. My partner says I used to ask her literally about every minute where was the TV in my room and why wasn't it on? There was no TV there at all. So it was just all those all those things coming together. Um, so I think for me, the big thing that I really remember and concentrated on was just accepting, like I say, that, that something had happened there was some changes and really just embrace them and see what fell out of it moving forward. Mm. And then tell me about when you, so you sort of obviously get through those first few days, you start to get a, a diagnose, diagnosis around what's happened and, and you're looking at the recovery journey ahead. What were some of the early thoughts in that stage when you start to have a handle of actually what was involved in your recovery ahead? Yeah, well, that's really interesting too because I didn't really know and like I touched on, I couldn't really even comprehend what had happened to me, let alone the journey that was ahead. So there's lots of specialists coming in and they're talking their, um, you know, their, their lingo and they'd share with the family what was happened, where I was at, all those types of steps. So, yeah, I, I think probably still at that stage, it was really just, just being quite open and just accepting that I had a bit of groundwork to do. And <clears throat> I guess early on, I made a real conscious effort, if that's the right way to say it, I can't even acknowledge if I did, but really just to take the advice and follow the instructions that were given to me. And then I know from our pre previous discussion that actually, yeah, recovery looked like having to relearn doing a lot of things. So tell us about, yeah, how the treatment and recovery played out. Yeah, I did. So if I cast my eye right back to start, I remember I was in the neurology ward in Christchurch Hospital after going through theatre and... Uh, I remember one day I told I was told I was going to be transferred to the Laura Ferguson um, Brain Injury Trust campus, which is um, down here in Christchurch. Didn't even know who Laura Ferguson was, didn't know what they did, didn't even know where they were. Um, so again, I just went with it, did I was as I was told. And really, it was a bit of a settling in transition piece, really. Um, like I said, obviously, you know when you're in hospital that something's happened. Um, something's going on and then you moved picked up and taken to another facility um the staff there were really amazing um really helpful and really the probably the first good few days was really just me settling and and try, they were trying to help me understand what had happened maybe what the future might look like and where it was going so 
uh, I guess the the treatment and recovery, really, it was quite a long journey. So obviously there was lots of specialists involved. Um, there was lots of assessments. So there was um, physical, um, cognitive, um, speech and language, and obviously the, the physical physio assessments that were made. And they really started off in the basics. So it was really no what's your name, who are you, we are you type of piece, and then they involved from there. So a, a lot of that was learning different strategies of, of where I was and what I needed to do to address those. Mm. And I know from, you know, recovery in general, when we look at what recovery can look like for people, it's a it's a wave, it's never linear. So I imagine there were times when it looked like things were going really well and then perhaps there were some setbacks. Can you tell us a bit about that experience? Yeah, it was, it was waves and to be honest, it still is. It is waves. Obviously, they're, they're less frequent now and, and less acute. But I think it was really just the realities of different things, right? So, obviously, in the early days, obviously, I had my own room. It was a secure unit. I had my own room. And I got to the point where I could navigate around the campus, right? So, I, I knew where the, the lounge was, the library, kitchen, um, the different facilities. Then I could move through to, uh, there was a gym. So, I could jump up on an exercise bike and do some physical recovery and that was really good but then there's different little things which popped up as part of the assessments and obviously the recovery process so I remember um, at one stage I was asked to just um, memorize um, the conversation was around you know Nick you're going to go to the supermarket Uh, when you're there can you pick us you know five things so a bottle of milk loaf of bread you know can of baked beans whatever and it sounds really, really strange when you say it in this kind of context, but at the time, I just really was blown away and just didn't even con- comprehend what I was being asked, let alone was expected to do, right? So the fact that it was like, you know, Nick, you go in the supermarket, it was like, oh my God, I don't even know what a supermarket is. I don't even know where one is. Um, and then it was like, we need you to get just these few basic things. And again, it's just trying to compute and just trying to get the brain to understand all those things. And like you touched on, Sarah, it's really just the whole relearning process. Yeah, and do you know, I find that it's 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 almost hard as a as you say when you're in this context to get your head around because those are those are schemas, those are things that we take for granted every day. Like I said, if someone gave me that thing, actually, more more my probably I'm sure getting to the supermarket and being distracted by something else, then it would be actually remembering where what a supermarket is and and where to find it. So it sounds like almost it was like starting starting at the bare basics as you said learning a name and where you were and those sorts of things I'm wondering I'm reflecting a bit on my own journey coming having been through burnout but also having the expertise in in psychology in going through your recovery and having all that expertise in health and safety were there times when you thought you know I feel frustrated by this because I I know that I should be able to do this or uh there's some, some sort of knowledge or expertise that I have that's that's helping me through this journey I guess a lot of them were different strategies which I had to unlock and had to unravel and apply in different manners. So like you say, in regards to health and safety, I mean, we talk about sharing information with different um, different people, right? Some people are, are visual, um, some people are hands-on, um, some people like reading. So there was lots of different ways that all the specialists would help me understand those different things. So I guess one really good example is, um, remember I had, say, CAT scans, there was neurologists from the hospital who they would come in, they would give me an understanding of, of what had happened to me, um, what condition my brain was in, um, the next steps type piece, right? But I remember one day I was in a session, I think it was with the psychologist at the time, and I think she picked up that I was just struggling to comprehend and pull some that together. So she literally got out a pen and paper and just did a really basic um, sort of pack and save man type of diagram, just saying, this is your head, this is your brain, 
Um, these are the parts which have damaged, and then I've still got it. I've got it on a frame at home, but just it was a couple of bullet points just to really break down and simplify and delay person terms. And I remember at the time just thinking, my God, you've just literally unlocked all of that information for me because I could just comprehend and process it and acknowledge it. Gosh, it just, it just shows how powerful it is in, in terms of working with people you know, in a way that really makes sense to them. I imagine for some other people, it might have been uh, an auditory way of listening to it or some other way that just is that that important key. Uh, when you said, tell us about sort of the return to work. So how long were you off work for? And then when did you start to return back to work? Yeah, good question. So I remember I was in uh, at the unit, so the Laura Ferguson unit, for I think it was three weeks. And it was probably quite a lucky time because being just after Christmas, it for some reason, it tends to be their quiet period. So I think they usually have about 15 or 20 beds in the unit. And when I was there, there was only two of us in the unit. So there was lots of staff around. There was lots of space. It was obviously a quiet time, which was really good. I remember I got released uh, to go home, I think was the terminology, one weekend. And that was really just to see how I could transition back into the home environment and back into the community, as they call it. And that went okay. That went fine. Obviously, there's a few caveats around that. And then I remember I sat in front of almost what you'd imagine like the sort of the panels and sort of prison movies, right? Where you have to sort of plead your case of whether you can move out of prison. Or for me, it was whether I could go home. So I remember being really, really nervous. Obviously, there was all the different specialists giving their feedback about how my recovery was going, what kind of uh, state I was in. Anyway, Went through that and that was fine. And one of the big sign-offs before I was released to go home was I had to demonstrate that I could essentially look after myself. So I got to the stage, obviously, I could have a shower, uh, I could get dressed, choose my clothes, all that type of thing. But I really remember, and I look back and I laugh a little bit, but I was asked to make lunch for myself. So I made, I think it was bacon and eggs with one of the nurses, and then we sat down and had lunch together. And again, at the time, it seemed pretty innocent, but still a challenge for me. And I remember the discussion with the nurse at the end, but she said, yeah, I think you're okay. And that was, again, just when my mind clicked and I thought, right, so you've actually been scoping me out and seeing if I can look after myself and make lunch. And it was a good lunch, so I obviously succeeded. Um, but then I went home and then I had, obviously, the specialists were coming visit, visiting me at home and at different outpatient units, so that was great. So the, um, the recovery and the support continued. And I think I went back to work. Um, it was really, really soon I ended up back at work. I think it was uh, probably towards the end of February, which was really, really soon. And there's a bit of a backstory behind that, right? So like I touched on earlier, I'm a really people-centric person. Um, generally, I'm that individual who doesn't want to sit still, who's always thinking, planning ahead, always wants to be active. So if you think about putting me in a situation where I'm at home, um, I can't drive, um, partner was at work, it was me and the cat. It was really, it was just chewing my brain up inside and out. So the team at Laura Ferguson really went into bat with me at the time. Um, and then through discussions with my employer, I made a really quick transition back to work. But in saying that, I remember my first day, I think I went into the office for 40 minutes, um, did a bit of a greet, uh, meet and greet, and that really just took it out of me. I was destroyed, um, jumped into taxi home, and I think I slept for the rest of the day just after that. So really small steps to start with. Um, and then obviously there was a long transition period before I got back to, uh, I guess, even close to my full duties back in my role. And I remember one of the things you talked about too was even now you find yourself using strategies 
to help in what might be everyday conversations or everyday actions. What are some of those strategies that you use? Yeah, thanks for challenging me on that one. So a, a bit of context around that is I guess I've become really acceptant of, of where I am and all those different little fish hooks that I have, as I call them, um, little speed bumps that I come across and the different strategies that I have. So one really good example is today, obviously, like you say, we talked about um, being part of this webinar and this discussion. Probably in the past, as an individual, I would have, you know, written notes. I probably would have practiced. I would have pre-planned. I would have turned that inside out and gone over and over. Whereas now, one of the things I do is I come up with, obviously, a loose plan, um, jot down some bullet points, and I'm more than comfortable, really, what I call is just winging it. And part of that is because I don't want to overthink things too much. I don't want to overwhelm myself. And again, like I touched on, I'm actually quite confident and comfortable of where I'm at. So one of the other strategies which I use quite often is um, obviously the calendar and my phone and Outlook. So I block out a lot of time for me. So probably after this meeting, I think I've blocked out a half an hour just to just to detune downtime and I'll go for a walk, get something to eat, right? So that's to protect my fatigue. Um, and one of the other big ones, um, Sarah, which I probably use is you guys probably won't have noticed, but one of the issues I still have is um, choosing and selecting words. So quite often I'll just spit out the first word which comes to mind, obviously with a bit of thought going into that. But whereas I might be dying to tell you guys how I went for a run this morning, whereas it might come out as telling you that I went for a jog. And that's really just my brain thinking, right, jog, run, pretty similar. So I'll put that in and I'll carry on the conversation. And, you know, for the people listening or interacting with me, they probably won't know versus internally, I'll still be battling away thinking, God, I just want to tell you I went for a run, but I'll keep this conversation going. Yeah. Gosh, it sounds like there's a huge amount of, of mental work that goes into each day and lots of them. I'm actually reflecting, it's almost similar in some ways to some of the other discussions we've had around hidden illnesses or, um, but because, you know, I've got fibromyalgia and I do something similar. So afterwards, you know, I, I would take time away from these webinars to kind of, you know, recharge. But they're, they're all hidden strategies that not everyone else will see you doing. And so, you know, do you, are you still finding on a day-to-day basis that, say, managing the fatigue, for example, when there's so much mentally going on to manage situations, to, you know, recall things, to plan, as you were saying, uh, or do you find now that you're able to, because you're planning and strategizing so well, that, that you're able to regulate it better? Yeah, I can do. And that's one of the big challenges, which... I'll admit I still have because I'm constantly, I guess, in some kind of strange way trying to prove I'm getting back to where I was pre-injury, right? But I'll probably never going to make it. So I really have to just police myself that I'm not trying to do too much. And like I say, part of that is just protecting me and my time and my capabilities. So, for example, I know if I'm, I'm looking at some really technical information or having some quite complex meetings or conversations or pulling information together that's going to be a drain on me so I'll try and do those types of tasks first thing in the day Um, or I might just have to accept that coming towards the end of the day I'm going to have less capacity and capability to do things and it's just part of how I need to work and and plan my days. So it sounds like there's been a huge amount of sort of self-acceptance that's gone into that and it's making me think there's you know, there's that idea of post-traumatic growth after a traumatic incident. And is that something that you that resonates with you? 
Yes, yeah, yeah. It sounds really weird. So I have a few conversations with people um, on the same topic, right? And generally, my answer is, if I could turn back the clock and not go through the injury and obviously the recovery process, so I wouldn't. Which people obviously just think that's, you know, my God, that's that's just really strange. How how could you even accept that? So yeah, there, there has been lots lots of learnings, lots of growth. So for instance, I remember one of the sessions with my psychologist is I was actually clinically proven to be more empathetic as an individual now, right? So even if that's one of the big things that falls out of going through this, you know, injury and recovery process, then I'm more than willing to embrace it. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. And it, and as you said, almost gives you a different perspective on life. I imagine if you, if you've been through something like that, because you, as an adult, it, it would be easy to get lost in the day-to-day of just doing things, just doing things. When you've had something that, that absolutely reframes your entire way of living, it gives you a completely different perspective, I imagine, on what's important, where you spend your time, as you say, how you look after yourself and and all those other building blocks. Yeah, it does. And and self-care is a really big winner, right? So, I mean, I'm, I make no beefs about saying to my boss or anybody, you know, I can't do that meeting because X, Y, Z, or I just need some time out, or I'm going to go for a walk at lunchtime, or I'm going to take the opportunity to jump on the bike. I still ride a mountain bike. But to finish work early today, it might have been a tough week, might have got some wins, the sun's shining, so I'm going to take a bit of me time back and jump on the bike and spend an hour, or finish early and spend some time with the kids on a Friday afternoon, whatever it is. So, yeah, I mean, there's some... There's some really big wins, which I'm sure you'll be aware of with what you've gone through. But it's, it's you know, I don't think I'd turn back the clock. Yeah, it's so powerful. And um, so I'm interested then in terms of workplaces and those listening in, what are some of the things that workplaces could do to A, support people who have perhaps been through an, an injury, a traumatic brain injury, such as you have? Or, or even, I guess, because there are similarities between those that are hidden illnesses or or, you know, disabilities, perhaps you could say, that are not visible and easy to go, well, that person obviously needs that sort of support. What are some things that workplaces could do to better support people in their recovery and transition back into work? Yeah, good question. Obviously, there's lots of specifics for an individual, right? But I think at a high level, I've jotted down some notes. I'm really people-centric, but I think understanding and knowing who the person was potentially before um, their injury or illness is really important, right? And I think that's for whether it's an HR or a safety professional or an employer in general, to understand who the person was and who they are now as a result. Um, so it's um, really, yeah, getting to know the person and just understanding that things have changed. And it may be for the short term, it may be for the long term, but I guess to extend on that, it's really making sure that at a leadership or even a business level, that they're aware and they accept that of the employee. So that's really important. Obviously, it's around understanding that it's going to be it's potentially going to be a long process for the person's recovery. But it might be lots of small parts, um, not one big piece. And like you touched on earlier, Sarah, it's not going to be a linear journey as well. There's going to be peaks and troughs. Um, things are going to pop up, um, things that aren't known. And really, I think that one of the big factors I'd say is just keeping a constant um, conduit of communication with not only the person, but with their their family or their friends or their close colleagues at work as well, just to keep tabs on how that person's progressing. 
Yeah. Actually, I wanted to come to that because it sounds like having a support network has been really critical. And and tell me, obviously, there was sort of a formal support network in those that were as part of the Laura Ferguson Trust and in your family. But are there other people that you found along the way either was it a surprise part of your network, perhaps a friend, a neighbour, somebody like that, or or colleagues at work? Um, or how much did you have to sort of have to build a network as part of the recovery process? Yeah, so I had, I guess, in the work in the work environment, I had a formal support team. So um, my wider team um, and my manager at the time were so supportive and even our general manager, I really could not fault and I couldn't say they could have done anything different. So that's a big thank you for those people and they know who they are. But then, like you touched on, extending that out further, I guess I had an informal support network, especially at work, and it was like you say, it was people that I I, I might have interacted with. It was obviously the, the people that you know I was friends with. Um, but lots of people came out of the woodwork. And again, probably like you'll know, is... Once you've gone through an injury or an illness um, or something's happened to you, you never know who else has had a similar experience, right? So I had lots of conversations and developed some really good relationships, um, for example, with people that I used to work with who had gone through um, cancer diagnosis, right? And part of it was just, it's a similar journey. So I was accepting that um, something had changed. Um, There was obviously pluses and minuses, but really they had a choice of how they could move forward. So that that was probably, I guess, the work environment. And then, again, my friends were amazing. I remember one of my friends, um, he took it on himself to make sure that I got up every Saturday morning and he'd take me to Hagley Park um, with his two dogs and we'd go for a walk. And we talk a whole lot of um, rambling stuff. And again, it's a little bit embarrassing because he said to me since, you know, God, those early days, you were just off on a whole lot of really weird tangents. But again, it was just that support level that he would say, no, I've just got to get Nick back out into the real world and just get him back, back in the chain of things, you know, back moving along and he just really accepting of, of just that journey and supporting that journey, right? And again, you know, family, you can't fault family. They're always there for you no matter what. That is so true. Well, actually, there's a couple of things that that you've you, you said that I'd like to um to unpick a bit further. And one of them I was reflecting was you're talking about um that acceptance. And I was thinking that's also around that the incident that's happened, it's like an illness, I guess, as well. It has happened outside of your control, so you had no control in it happening. You it's been landed with you. And we know that you know Chris and I've been doing some research around this for a project around how important having that sense of control is is for well being. So how how have you found, you know, gaining that control and what are some of the things in terms of that self-acceptance? Were there particular things that you just had to address as part of that self-acceptance or you know, how's that played a role in, in your recovery? Sort of a question. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I think overall, just literally the word is just acceptance, right? And it's just being aware that, like I said earlier, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but things have changed and they're out of my control, right? So there's some things that I can influence, there's some things that I can change, but I guess in the big picture, there's things that I can't and never will be able to. So that's why I guess it's really important for me to acknowledge all the strategies that like we've talked about that I have and just making sure that I actively integrate those in to what I'm doing. Um, did that kind of answer your question? Yeah. Mm, it did, yeah. Which yeah. probably comes to my my next question, which is you mentioned earlier on it was important for employers to understand the person before 
they had their injury. Are particular reasons, you know, why it's important or what are the factors that it's important to be aware of? Well, I think part of it is, is understanding the capability and the capacity of a person and then setting clear expectations, obviously, whilst engaging with, say, the medical specialist, so especially occupational therapists. But I think there's the value in that. So if I remember, or if I think back to my recovery, like I said, I had a really great manager and she was essentially, I would call her probably one of the better description, a bit of a gatekeeper. So she would recognise, you know, the things or the different tasks um, or the different types of work that I could, you know, do quite easily in the past. And then she could have a look at the things which maybe I was struggling with now. And then we could have a different conversation. It might be, hey, look, do you need more support or do you need more time? And I remember one of the other really good conversations I had with her early on was just taking off all the expectation of me. So really it was around, you know, look, yes, this is part of the work that we need you to do, but we accept that you're not quite at that space or you're not at that that capacity at this time. So setting some clear expectations, even just around um, timing, standards, level of detail and everything. And I remember there was one particular task um, that I was given. And again, if I turn back the clock and I look at now, it was basically pulling some information together on an Excel spreadsheet. And it took me, I think, three days to try and even get my head around what the task was. I don't know why, but I remember walking into the office at one stage and I just had a total reset. I basically started from scratch again and I think I'd already invested three days. And from that morning, I think I'd completed it in about a couple of hours, two hours. Anyway, had a bit of a debrief with my manager at the time and she just said, look, look, we could see that it was really challenging you and we could see that you were struggling with it, but we didn't want to walk in because whilst we were, you know, watching from afar, we're really letting you understand it and learn. So really that was, again, like I say, it was just those people keeping tabs on me, right, and just understanding what what my capability was, um, where I was at, and then, I guess, policing it. Yeah, there's a huge amount of compassion that goes into that too, doesn't it? I mean, I can imagine, you know, perhaps it, for a particular kind of manager, perhaps who, who wasn't as aware or compassionate, it would be easy to go, oh, look, just hurry up. Just look, I'll do it, look, you know, and get impatient perhaps. But it sounds like having, and that's that real empathetic leadership, isn't it? It shows why that well-being leadership aspect is just so important. Um, the other piece I wanted to ask as well, and, and perhaps I'm relating this again to my experience with fibro, is that I I get really frustrated when people say things like, oh, poor you, to me. So are there things that you find I don't know, people say or or actions that others do which either make life more challenging or are things that we could learn differently to respond to? Yeah, I think in general, probably what frustrates me is when there's people that have had injuries or illnesses and they're going through the recovery stage, I think maybe it's I don't know, maybe it's part of society. You'll know more about this than me, right? But there's always that, I guess, that urgency and that push or the expectation that people are going to recover, you know, ASAP and they're going to be back to where they were as soon as possible, right? And I understand that part of it is, is probably frustration, right? So whether it's from, from workload or resourcing from an employer or maybe it's just from general frustration from family. But I think it... I think people just really need to take a step back. And I guess part of that is, like I said earlier, if you haven't gone through you know, a type of injury or an illness, 
if you haven't experienced firsthand, you're probably never going to quite understand. But that's probably one of the big things that frustrates me, Sarah, is just this expectation that, yep, you know, you've been injured, but, you know, you've been to whatever it may be, 10 physios, and you're saying your knee's still sore, right? Or you're still on light duties, or you still can't return to work, or whatever it may be. But I think there's a there's an underlying tone potentially out there, like I say, in society that maybe maybe there's a bit of doubt, right, just about people how, how people are. I think that's a really interesting, interesting point. And it's probably, you know, and I feel like in some ways it's a bit two-sided because with my fibro, for example, I can... I can feel that pressure to to need to be back on because I've got children or I've got things that need to be done. Um, and and so therefore almost the, I turn the pressure around on myself and think if I'm in a sort of fibro flare, I think, well, I've got time for this. I need to, I need to, I need to crack on. I need to, why I get frustrated with myself and where I'm at. I don't know if you ever experienced that or perhaps you're, perhaps you're further along the self-acceptance journey than I am. <laughs> Are there times well, when you I, get frustrated like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely I do. And I guess like we touched on earlier, that's when I need to just step back and say, no, look, you need some downtime. You need to look after yourself. You know, you can't do that meeting or you can't meet that deadline or you can't provide that information to that standard. And it's it's really making sure that I just step back and I guess be the police myself, right? And again, you know, colleagues that I talk to um, or I work with or even family members, they still quite often will say, no, 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 you're never going to be able to do that. Well, that's not realistic. So it's really just that chicken challenge. Yeah. But again, a bit like you, I really struggle. Um, and again, you know, internally, I don't feel that I have to, but I'm still trying to prove that I'm back to the old me, which like I touched on, I'm probably never going to be that person again. But that's okay. Yeah. It sounds to me that's also been another role for for those in wellbeing roles or health and safety roles, HR roles, is almost being that advocate. And I think you mentioned earlier that almost that policewoman. And I know that Chris and my my other um, team member Jane can be a bit like that sometimes. And and I will over ambitiously sign myself up for things, and then one of them will say, "You probably <laughs> have overcommitted." <laughs> and yeah. Um, yeah, and it's it's easy to do, but as you, as you said, you, you sometimes see those people on the outside too to advocate for you or to to suggest things to you or whatever it may be. Yeah, and that's that's probably another one of the big wins for me, right? So historically, you know, I've always been aware that, you know, don't want to sound disrespectful, but well-being is important, right? And like I touched on, until I've really experienced that, now I'm a real champion. And I'm probably, I probably go a little bit too far sometimes. In other words, by that I mean, especially as a health and safety professional, I probably prioritise, like I say, the person and their individual well-being and people-centric versus stepping back and actually looking at the wider picture of, say, the business requirements, right? So again, that's another that's another challenge where sometimes I just have to step back and say, hang on, just that's not the time or place for this or just step back and just understand my role and just the moving parts of the puzzle. Thinking about you know where, where you are now, uh, and and yes, and I'm thinking about you know the day to day conversations and those sorts of things. Are there things that you find are more challenging in in your interactions with others, in the communication piece, and what works, um, yeah, day to day in the workplace? Seeing that's such a critical part of of how we develop relationships with others. But obviously, fatigue is still a really big one for me. So, like we touched about earlier, I just. Um, really try to be proactive about my scheduling and workload um, and that type of thing. Obviously, um, memory, memory is a little bit shot now, but it's getting better. But one of the other big things for me is complex thinking, right? 
or going through really technical pieces of information. So one of the things which I, another strategy which I use is say I may have a, um, a Teams meeting or it might be a, a physical meeting. Um, I may take notes. So I may be jotting away taking notes and I obviously let the person presenting know that yes, I am listening. I'm just taking notes as I go. And then I might let it sink in. And often one of the other tools I use is I might ask if there's any um, follow-up collateral that I can use. So I might say, hey, can I grab the presentation just to review or your notes just to look at it back over in, in my time? So again, like you touched on earlier, so just, just different medias to suit different people, right? So just make sure that it's available for those people. And I guess from a workplace, um, I guess flexibility is really big for me. And again, in the well-being space, um, as you know, pe different people need different types of flexibility. So whether it's um, hours or location is really big. Obviously, places to rest and interact and connect with others is good. So it might be a, a Teams call, it might be um, a physical location, it might be a lunchroom, or it might be a get-together, people working remotely, it might pull people together once a month through a physical meeting, whatever it might be. And probably the other really big one I think is important is just the actual environment that people work in. So, you know, is, is it fit for purpose? Is it appropriate? Um, all those types of moving parts. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, head to rowwellbeing, that's R-O-W-wellbeing.com and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again, and we look forward to catching up with you really soon.